Brothers and sisters, good morning. Uh, my name is Patrick Bowerman. Uh, if you don't know me, I have the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors uh, at River Oaks. Uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to be uh, looking specifically at verses 40 through 52. And as you're flipping there, um, one of the things I want you to know about is uh, on a door frame in, in my kid's playroom at my house is something that I bet you'll find in your house as well. You know, rising at regular increments are, are these dark lines on the doorframe that tell a story. They start, you know, really low, but, you know, it's really amazing as I keep looking at those marks, they're starting to get closer and closer to my eye level. Each line has a name and a, and a date next to it. You know, each of these marks is, is showing the heights of my children as they're continuing to grow and as they're changing year by year. It serves as a reminder of how quickly this growth happens and how they're maturing into young men and young women. Uh, it's kind of remarkable to just look back and say, wow, look how much they just grew in that, in that one uh, you know, year, that, those six months. And remember, as we've been studying the book of Luke, as we've been in the first two chapters, we've seen that Luke is a first-rate historian. You know, he gets the details right. He cares deeply about them, and he goes and he talks to, to you know, primary sources, we understand he's been talking to Mary and he's asked Mary to tell him about the birth of Jesus. And in this passage, we also see a description of Jesus as a, as a boy. In verse 40 and 52, we see two of these really important marks, these dark lines that are, that are kind of showing significant places in Jesus' life. In verse 40, we hear these words, and the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is one of those summary statements of the time from when Jesus was a baby to when he was about 12 years old. He grew in strength and wisdom, and the favor of God was on him. But as we look at verse 52, we see that that, that verse is talking about Jesus' growth from being a, a boy to a man when he's about 30 years old. With both of these markers, though, we see that, that Jesus has been growing in wisdom and in strength, and in favor with God and with man. And so as we think about these growth markers, here's a question I want us to be thinking about as we read our passage this morning. As we're reading the text, think about this. How is it that Jesus, who is fully God, he's God himself, he is the Messiah, how is it that he could grow in wisdom and favor with God? This is a question we want to answer this morning, and we're going to try to see this in the text. How is it that the Son of God, who is God himself, could grow in wisdom and favor with God? So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, and we're going to read from starting in verse 40. It says this, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he says to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Our main point this uh, our main point this morning is something that's fascinating to consider that may not be immediately obvious as you just read through the passage for the first time. You know, we often praise God that he was willing to become a man. But the miracle of the incarnation becomes even more profound the more we think about it. And here's the the main idea I want us to think about. When Jesus became a man, he willingly submitted to the normal processes of human development. This goes from the beginning when he was in his mother's womb all the way to the time when he is in heavenly glory. He submits willingly to the normal process of human development. This is, this is a part of the miracle of the incarnation. And as we walk through our passage, we're going we're gonna to talk about it kind of in two big ideas. One is this, that he grows in stature and wisdom. And the second, that he grows in favor with God and with man. And so let's begin with the first one. Luke starts here in in verse 40 by highlighting two remarkable realities for us of the incarnation. Namely, that Jesus, the Savior, grows in stature, in wisdom. In other words, he grows in strength and in mentality. You know, Jesus begins just like we all do as as a baby being held in his mother's arms. So you know, he learns to begin to crawl and, and not much longer after that, he begins to walk. And then to run. As a boy, he could climb trees, and I'm sure he liked to skip rocks. You know, when he would run and fell down, he scraped his knees, they would bleed. When he played hard, he sweat and he got muddy. After a long day's work, he's hungry and tired. And as he grows as a young man, he undoubtedly heard words like this. You know, soon, Jesus, you're going to be as tall as your father, Joseph. And it's not long, Jesus, before you become a man. And so for us to think conceptually about this idea of Jesus growing physically, I don't, I don't think that's that difficult for us to think about. But given the reality that he is inherently omnipotent as God, it's still shocking to think that he submitted to human dependency as a child and the process of growing as a boy. It's remarkable to think that he was willing to do that. So he grows physically, but have you, have you given much thought to the reality that Jesus' wisdom increased as he grew. You know, it starts with things like he, he, he begins to recognize his own mother's voice. A little bit later, he begins to understand words, and he, and he learns how to speak. As a boy, he, he learns the skills of his father's trade. He learns through instruction and repetition how to use materials and, and tools to create things that were useful for people to buy. But again, think about it. The God who spoke the universe into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, now has to learn how to make a stool using raw materials that he created. 
He has to learn through repetition and the process of building instead of simply speaking something in to be. He grows both in physical nature and in learning the mechanics of things, but also in wisdom on how to put them together, how to, how to live, how to do all of the things that he needs to do. And so given who Jesus is, this is amazing for us to consider. You see, Luke's gospel is the only one that tells us this story. I'm so thankful that we have it. But as Luke has been talking to Mary, the, the question probably came up, what was Jesus like as a boy? I, mean, I know what he's like as a child. I know what he's like later. What was he like as he's growing up? And after thinking about it for a minute, Mary says, I've got a good story to tell you. Not just, not just because of how I felt in the moment, and there were lots of feelings, but because of what I learned about my son. And so she begins telling the story and, and helps us again to see that, that she and Joseph were, were faithful Jews. Um, every year they would go up to Jerusalem to, to participate in the feast of the Passover. They were wanting to observe those holy days because they loved God and they desired to keep his law, keep his word. But this year, this, this, this time when Jesus is 12 and they go up to the Passover, is one of those marks on the doorframe that's etched deep in her memory. Because Jesus here is just one year away from becoming a son of the commandment. You know, at 13, they were considered a full member of the Jewish synagogue. It's still celebrated today by Jews when they would do the bar mitzvahs and stuff as they're celebrating a boy coming into manhood. But when boys were 12, it was tradition to bring them to Jerusalem with their dads to observe Passover so that they could learn what it means to participate in the worship of God as a man. The dads are supposed to teach them and show them what true worship looks like. And I think this in part could be part of the explanation for why Jesus says he needed to be in his father's house. He's there to learn. So he will worship God in faithfulness in every way. And so the occasion for this trip to Jerusalem provides a context in which Joseph can teach Jesus the rites and ceremonies and ways to honor God as a faithful Jew. Again, remember who Jesus is and what he's there for. And we see that this is discipleship, right? This is discipleship. And it starts within the family. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, is discipled by his dad, Joseph, a carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee. But Joseph takes seriously this charge to train up Jesus because he loves his son. He wants him to follow the Lord as he does. And as we love our children, we too will take up this calling to bring up our children in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. You see, it's important that we would show our children what authentic worship looks like, both within the church and specifically within the home, because they will follow our lead. You know, our, our worship isn't just to be private, but especially as parents, it's to be public in front of our children. I don't know what it looks like for you in your home as you think about discipleship and you think about raising your kids and teaching them the things of the Lord. But at our house, some of the things we try to do regularly is, is to sing. As a family, it may not sound the most wonderful, but we're singing songs of praise to God, whether it be in the morning or in the evening, so that our kids would, would understand all the more the glories of Christ, but also they would hear 
our love for him as well. We spend time in God's word trying to understand and unpack it, both, you know, whether it be in the full Bible or even in children's Bibles as we're seeing, you know, the, the different stories and how they link together. We spend time praying, you know, not just us out loud, you know, but our kids encouraging them to pray. They're lifting their voices to God, that they're, you know, imploring God to work in the nations, to save souls, to work in our church. Discipleship in all of these ways is important that we would be modeling it in front of our children so that they would see and understand what worship looks like for them. But it's not just parents. You know, it's, it's also for the church. And specifically, I'm thinking, like, if you're a high school student or a college student, maybe someone just after that, but you don't have kids, there's immense value and beauty in you worshiping and serving our majestic God. Whether you realize it or not, there are younger people than you who are looking to you and watching you to see what worship looks like. So I want to encourage you and exhort you to think hard about our God, to listen carefully as the word is proclaimed, to pray with all of your might, trusting in our God who will act and sing. Sing with great joy from your hearts because you love God. And it will help those that are younger than you see what true worship looks like. If the son of God himself needed to be discipled, how much more do you and I need to be discipled in how to love and serve and be dedicated to our Savior? It's critical. So the next generation would know and serve God. And so Mary's telling the story and she says, you know, after we were in the city, our hearts were full. We'd been feasting on, on food and feasting on the Lord. You know, 200,000 people have come to the town and, and we've been worshiping. And then everyone begins to disperse back to their own hometowns, families and, and groups of caravans leading all over the place. And as we're going back home, one of our worst fears as a parent is realized. And it was terrifying. She tells Luke, you won't believe it, but, but we were heading back from the city I was at the front with the little kids. Joseph was in the back with the little men. I mean, not, did I just say the little men? With the men. <laughs> Joseph's in the back with the, the men, the big guys. <laughs> but the problem is Jesus is generally so responsible that we just thought that he was supposed to, he was where he was supposed to be. You know, I thought Jesus was in the back with Joseph, with, with the big guys. They thought that he was up front with me. And, you know, and his other siblings. But, you know, as we're gathering together at the end of the day, like we're, you know, all the caravan's gone, we're, we're setting up as a family to, to get ready to go to bed for the night. Joseph and I looked at each other. And we said, where's Jesus? And so we didn't panic. We thought, well, he's most likely with the family, you know, or some of our friends. So, so we begin to look for him and try to find him with our family. But we realized quickly He's nowhere to be found. And it sinks into us that we have lost the Son of God. I had one job, and I lost him. So we were in great 
distress, looking everywhere till we could find him. You know, if you lose your child for even a minute or two, you know how gut-wrenching this can be. I can remember sitting at home one time and, and like I hadn't seen Evelyn in a while. And finally I realized, where's Evelyn? And so I start calling out for her, Evelyn, where are you? No response. And then, you know, you know what happens? Those, those thoughts start running around in my mind, like all these dangerous scenarios. I, I go outside and look at the pool. She's not there. I'm running around the front of the yard, you know, yelling for her. She's not there. I don't know where she is. Those couple of minutes felt like 47 years. And I come back inside, and I eventually find her in my bedroom, under my desk, playing with her toys. She didn't even realize that I was looking for her. From her perspective, she was just doing what she was supposed to be doing. She didn't, she didn't really even hear me calling out. And she couldn't conceive of why I was hugging her so tightly and kissing her, and also super frustrated that she wasn't responding. <laughs> But for Joseph and Mary, it it took three days for them to find their son. Just think about that. Two whole nights where they have to go to sleep and they don't know where their son is. What a nightmare that might have been, must have been. All that fear, all that anxiety, you know, the nightmare scenarios playing around in their own mind, like he could be anywhere, he could be in a ditch or, you know, whatever places you might say. But I bet they didn't expect to find Jesus as they found him when they eventually see him. As we see in verses 45 through 50, when they come to the temple, they find Jesus sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions, and giving them answers. (laughs) You know, like, okay, (laughs) I wasn't expecting that, as, as I'm pretty sure what they were thinking. But it was tradition that after the Passover, you know, all these, you know, teachers had traveled into the city to worship. The best teachers of the day, they would stick around for religious discussion and debate. And I can see how that would have been, uh, you know, something that Jesus would want to be a part of as he's desiring to learn more about the Father. As he's he's thinking about growing and what true worship looks like, this is a place that I want to be. And I can imagine him being super joyful of being a part of these conversations, his heart being full as he talks. But here Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, is able to sit among these men who have the equivalent of like two PhDs each. And it says in verse 47 that everyone who heard Jesus answer were amazed at his understanding and his answers. If you've ever spent time around sixth or seventh graders, which is about the age that Jesus is in this passage, you know that, especially if you're teaching them the Bible, they are great at asking questions. Fantastic questions, difficult questions, all kinds of them. But one thing that they're usually still lacking in is good answers to those questions. What's remarkable about Jesus is that we see in verses 46 and 47 that he's teaching the religious leaders. He's the one in their midst. He's the one, the central in the passage. He's the center of the discussion when Mary and Joseph enter into the temple to find their son. As you're, as you're thinking about this passage, I don't, I don't know if you thought much about this one in particular, but have you thought much about how Jesus was able to answer the religious leaders in the ways that he did? How was he able to do this as a 12-year-old boy? I believe that when we think about this passage and we think about Jesus being a boy here and having the answers, we tend to think like this. 
Of course, Jesus could instruct them. He is the word of God made flesh. He has all wisdom and knowledge of God, and therefore he teaches them out of this divine knowledge. I think that's how we typically think about it. It's as if we're saying he has a divine mind in a human body. But do you see any problems with taking this position? It may not be immediately obvious. It wasn't immediately obvious to me. You see, we can begin to minimize the humanity of Jesus by overemphasizing his divinity. We don't have to think that the baby Jesus, for example, was able to do complex calculus as a one-year-old in the crib. We don't have to think that he knows all of the languages as a, as a five-year-old and can speak all of them fluently to believe that he's God. You see, remember, Jesus willingly submitted to the regular processes of human development. This included the development of his brain as it grows and his wisdom as it increases. Instead, the Bible tells us that Jesus has two natures, which are united together in him. To emphasize the one, divine knowledge and wisdom, by minimizing the other, growth and wisdom as a, as a man, is to begin to walk down a road that can ultimately lead to heresy if you keep going down it. And look, if you were thinking this way, frankly, you aren't the only one if you fell into that trap. I've thought that way before. Uh, lots of people have. For the first 400 years of the church's existence, the church wrestled with a proper understanding of Christology. What is the relationship between Christ's divine and human nature? What is it that the scriptures are actually teaching about him so that we, we would think rightly about it? So for 400 years, they wrestled with this question. And so it was central at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, where the council is seeking to help the church understand this relationship. And so R.C. Sproul helpfully summarizes the, the, the statement or definition that they produce, but it, he does it in language that's a little easier for us to understand. And he summarizes the council's statement this way. They said that Jesus is truly human, truly divine, having two natures perfectly united, but without mixture or confusion, separation or division. And each nature retains its own attributes. So think about this. We must not flatten out Jesus by emphasizing one nature over the other because it diminishes his glory. Both natures, he is fully God and he's fully man, both are necessary for our salvation. You see the critical difference being highlighted here by Luke and in the story that Mary shares is that the, you know, the difference between Jesus who's 12 and these wise teachers is that Jesus learns and develops without sin. He is not tainted by original sin in the least. So he is able to grow in wisdom and knowledge at an exponentially higher rate than anyone else of his own age. Why is this true? Like how, how would the absence of sin help him to grow? Well, well, just think about it even in one way. What is the greatest, what's the great commandment that Jesus mentions? As you think about that, recognize Jesus is the only person who has been fully and truly able to love the Lord God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. And frankly, he's also the only one who's been able to love his neighbor as himself perfectly because he's without sin. Do you have any uh, 12 or 13 year olds in here today? 
Did you raise your hand? Okay, we got some. Great. So, question for you. You know, as you've been in math class, I'm sure you take math, has your mind ever wandered off from what you're supposed to be learning to where you're thinking maybe about uh, the video games that you would rather play today? You know, like Apex Legends or Splatoon 3. Henry just got that. He really likes it. Has your mind ever wondered, though, when you're supposed to be doing something else? Yeah. Or have you ever felt like your effort level ranks somewhere between bored to death and super lazy? Somewhere between those two. You see, Jesus is so focused on doing the Father's will that he is able to concentrate fully on what he is supposed to be learning and thinking rightly about what he should be thinking about. His time isn't spent trying to impress others. Instead, he uses all of his energy and his mind to grow in wisdom and knowledge. His mind isn't afflicted by laziness or by procrastination or by pride or any other number of sinful things that would cause our understanding to be diminished. Instead, he uses his energy and his mind. He's devoted to to God, and so he grows in such a way that he's far more developed than his peers. So why didn't God send Jesus as a full-grown man? to fulfill the saving role that he had for us and just immediately? Why did, why did it take 30 years to live in seeming obscurity before even his ministry began? Well, it was God's plan to allow time for Jesus to mature and to serve him. Even in ways that we don't know that we don't have chronicled in the Bible because Jesus grows physically and mentally and spiritually, and as he does that, he proves over and over and over and over and over who he is. He shows time and again what it looks like to be a man who lives a life dedicated to God in the full and without sin. And he lives in such a way that he can perfectly represent us as a substitute. At each stage of his development, Jesus goes about his father's business and people are amazed at him. And it's helpful because, you know, as, as we struggle with things, we recognize quickly Jesus knows what that is like. He's fully human in every way. And so when you struggle, when you have, you know, weakness and stuff, he understands and is able to help you. He's perfect. And he's able to, to, to lead you in paths of righteousness as you trust in him by faith. Mary's story answers the question that Luke asked, what was Jesus like as a boy? He's the wisest in a room full of religious heavyweights when he's 12. But it's not just that he grows in strength and and wisdom. Because Jesus submits to the normal process of human development, we've seen why it was necessary that he would grow this way. But Luke also sets out for us and shows us a couple more growth notches that we need to be aware of. Things that are marking very important developments in Jesus' life that are highlighting really a stunning reality. Not only is the favor of God on Jesus, as it says in verse 40, he has the favor of God. But if you look at verse 52, it says that he increases in favor with God and man. Again, we need to ask the question, How can the perfect son of God increase in the favor of God? Verses 48 through 51 help us to understand the answer. So turn with me there in your Bibles if you're not there already. This is what the Lord's word says. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. If you have lost your child for a couple of days and then you find them where they're not, at least in your mind, supposed to be, the words that Mary says here seem appropriate, don't they, as as she comes upon him. She's asking like, what is going on? You know, they haven't seen him in three days and and an explanation is, is appropriate here for the situation. But Jesus' response is is a bit enigmatic for us as we think about it. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? On the surface, the statement might sound like Jesus is being disrespectful to his mom and dad. Like he's minimizing what's been a really scary and traumatic time for his parents. But something we know right off the bat is this. We know that Jesus isn't mouthing off to his parents because if he is, If he is dishonoring his father and his mother, then that would be sin. And if he commits sin here, then we who trust in him would be dead in our sins and transgressions. Again, it matters at every moment that Jesus is faithful and obedient to the Lord. But the New Testament affirms in 1 Peter 2, 22, after this story, that Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And also the resurrection is the proof that Jesus was sinless because his sacrifice was accepted by God. He was raised from the dead and seated in the heavenlies. But as Jesus was talking from his perspective, he wasn't lost at all. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. And as he says this statement, we recognize that he's not mouthing off, but instead he's asking a very real question. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There's three things that stand out to us in verse 49. The first is this. Jesus wonders why his parents don't know where he's supposed to be. It's as as if Jesus is asking the question, hey, hey, mom and dad, have, have you forgotten who I am and what I've been called to do? You know, I wonder if it was easy for Mary and Joseph to to forget about Jesus as the Messiah and primarily think about him, at least for a bit, as Jesus, their son, their son, their boy. You know, they would have seen him every day interacting with their siblings, every day sitting at the dinner table, every day, you know, going out with Joseph, working in the the shop, making stuff, you know, running out in the yard with the friends and, and spending time with relatives and all the other normal things that he did every day that they might begin to forget that he has a broader mission to accomplish. They might have grown accustomed to how amazing he is, and here he's reminding them of his mission. But it's not just that. Jesus is also showing that he has a special relationship with God. No one else in Israel would have claimed what he says here. He doesn't say that God is our father, as the Jews did in the Old Testament, but instead he calls him my father. No one in the Old Testament spoke of God as being their father individually. It was always corporately. But Jesus speaks the words as if it's the most natural thing in the world for him to do. 
and it is. What he wants for them to see and for us to see is that he has a personal relationship with the Father. He knows the Father, and he always lives to obey him. And we hear not just Jesus proclaiming this, but the Father affirms this truth. When Jesus is baptized, just in a chapter later, where he booms his approval, you are my beloved son. Jesus has this relationship with God. And he shows, the third thing, he shows that he is submissive to the Father's will. He says, I must be in my Father's house. This shows that he is submissive to God's leading. And though he is God himself, he always submits to the Father's will. He lives to to do the Father's will. In other words, Jesus is obeying his heavenly Father by staying in the temple. He's not being disobedient here. It wasn't sinful, even though his parents might have thought that he was disobeying them in some way. He wasn't. Sometimes obeying our Heavenly Father means that we need to disobey others, but that's not what's happening here. He's being faithful. But Mary and Joseph's response, I think, is helpful for us because it seems that Jesus has such credibility with his parents that they're willing to listen to his answer and think deeply about what he says. They don't just understand the answer at the time. But it says Mary treasures these things up, treasures up these words, treasures up this story in such a way in her heart that later she comes to realize the full meaning of it. Probably sometime after God raises them from the dead and and sends the Holy Spirit. But here's how they respond when they're not sure why he's there. They ask a question of their son. They ask him a question. They want to understand the why behind Jesus' actions, because the heart matters. They understand that he's a boy who's still learning, including growing in communication and what good communication looks like. And so they ask him a question. They want to understand. And I think it's instructive for us in that way. You know, as you think about instructing your own children and correcting them when they do things that that you aren't pleased with, do do you ask questions of them? Do you seek to understand their motives as you correct their behavior? Are you trying to understand the why and not just assuming that you know why they did the thing that they did? But don't just think about parents and children. Think about your own relationships. Is it easy for you to assume the motives of others even when they may not be trying to be sinful against you? And would your response change Even if you felt hurt by somebody else, if you didn't assume that they have bad motives toward you, if you instead sought to understand and ask the question before then you move on to the next steps. That's what what we see here. And given who Jesus is, it stands out that not only does he submit to God the Father, but he submits to his mom and his dad. Verse 51 tells us that he leaves the temple and he goes home with them to Nazareth. And he was submissive to them. A better translation of this word, you know, based on its verb tense, is he kept on submitting to them over and over. He continues to submit to them. Just think about what we're saying here. The holy and sinless Son of God submits to his parents who are not perfect, who are sinners themselves. The sinless Son of God submits to them. And kids, you know, in the room, I want to share something with you. There might be times that you think you know better than your parents do. 
You might think that you're able to make better decisions than they are. You might think that their rules are foolish and are just there to keep you from having fun. If you're in a healthy family, though, your parents have good reasons for the rules that they set for you. And as you grow in wisdom, you will at least come to understand some of the reasoning behind why those rules are in place and why they're for your good. But more importantly, in the case of Jesus, he actually did know better than his parents. And yet he still submits to them and obeys their desires because God has placed Jesus under their authority. As you think about his perfect submission, and as you think about submission as a whole, that might, that might be a word that, that leaves a bad taste in your mouth. If that's you, I hope that seeing Jesus submit both to the Father and to his parents would begin to shift your perspective on it. You see, the, the submission that we see Jesus taking here takes the form of him choosing to do what is right. He's willing to honor his parents and to follow them home because he desires to glorify God. This isn't rooted in weakness or inferiority. Instead, it's rooted in his strength and in his trust in, in God the Father. But as we think about Jesus submitting, he's not just an example. Brothers and sisters, he is our substitute. See, we can rejoice that Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is full of wisdom and strength and the favor of God, perfectly submits to God on your behalf. He stands in your place as a perfect substitute with every action and every thought and every heart motivation perfectly calibrated to honor and love God so that when you don't perfectly submit, his perfect submission is credited to you by faith in Christ Jesus. As the Father sees you, when you place your faith in Jesus, he then 100% of the time sees you as if you always submitted to him because Jesus always did. And so as you think about that reality, can you understand how Jesus grows in favor with man? Because it's my hope that he's growing in favor with you as you think about his goodness and mercy. But he doesn't just grow in favor with man. It says that he grows in favor with God. And it, this is true because he continually is obedient to do the Father's will, both in staying in the temple and going home with his family. Both of these please God. As Jesus continues to obey and as he shows devotion to his Father, the Father's approval continues to rest on him. The reality grows almost in secret, but it doesn't stay secret. As Jesus begins his public ministry again, as he is baptized by John in chapter 3 here of Luke, God makes it plain. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Because Jesus is perfectly faithful to obey. So brothers and sisters, as we see Jesus here as a 12-year-old boy, 
We recognize he didn't set out to hurt his family and it, and it wasn't sinful for him to stay in the temple. Yet, Jesus still has to learn a lesson about how to love his parents well. I'm sure he and his mom and his dad, they had a lengthy conversation as they were going back home to Nazareth. <laughs> They're saying things like, we love you, son. We love your passion for God. It's fantastic. That is the most important thing that you would love and honor God with all that you have. And you just need to tell us what you're doing. <laughs> when you're doing it so that we know where you are and we're not worried for three days. Continue with all of your might and let's talk about it. And so as much as his parents loved Jesus and as much favor as he had in their eyes before this event happened, all the more after they saw his faithful response must he have grown in favor in their eyes. And after many years, as Mary reflects on these truths contained in Jesus' words in verse 49, we see that Jesus continues to grow in worth and value in her eyes as she sees with great clarity the true glory of Jesus, her son, the son of God, who is God himself. And it's my, my hope this morning as we've spent time in God's word that Jesus has grown in favor with you as you behold him in glory and majesty, even as a boy, that it would cause you to praise God. I hope that the reality that the perfect son of God had to grow in wisdom and maturity helps you realize that as you seek God, as you seek to grow as a Christian, you can depend upon Jesus who first walked those paths for you. And as you seek to grow in strength and wisdom and favor with God, all of those qualities are available to you through Jesus. So may he grow in favor in our eyes, both now and until we meet him face to face. And ultimately, as, as we zoom out from this fascinating scene that we, we see here, we know that Jesus continues to submit to his Father's will, so much so that he goes to the cross to make atonement for sinners. He goes to the cross to pay the debt that we could not pay. He perfectly submits in every way so that we could have his righteousness, that he would give his righteousness to us by faith. He takes our sin. He grants to us his perfect standing before God. This act of obedience is what we're celebrating today. As we come together to take communion, we're celebrating the reality that Christ is our substitute, that he died so that we would live. But we also celebrate communion as a way to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns because we know as well that he is going to return. So brothers and sisters, Jesus' act of obedience is substituted for our rebellion through faith and it's by him that we are made righteous. And so I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna come together and we're gonna take communion together reflecting on who he is and glorying in what he has done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this picture of Jesus that we see in Luke. I thank you that we get a glimpse of what he is like as a 12-year-old, the most remarkable 12-year-old who has ever lived. And we see his obedience and his submission that ultimately is leading him to the cross. Thank you, Lord, that he came, that he was born, that he lived, he obeyed perfectly, and that he died for our sakes. And Lord, I rejoice that he was raised 
signifying that his work is complete. He has defeated death and sin. He's defeated Satan. And Lord, we rejoice in him, our great hope, both now and until he returns. Lead us to grow in, in our favor of Jesus as we, as we think about him. Let him grow in our eyes. And Father, give us great hope and confidence as we come to trust in him alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.